Welcome to Attach, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attach want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. That was a creepy one, but that's okay. That's good. We got it. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Today, Jacob's going to bring us something monumental in pop and culture. Actually, I don't, it, it is monumental, but in maybe of more of a curious way. Ooh, yeah, I'm just intrigued. making up adjectives. I love how you try to actually apply them every fit, time. Fit them in. Sure. Like, yeah, absolutely. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Expect the Best, Not the Worst, The Impact of Parental Expectation on Black Males Math Scores. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to talk about some advice from Dr. White out of PBS about how to talk to our children about racism. If you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, while you're in that world of the World Wide Web, go to our YouTube page and like and subscribe to this episode on YouTube. But before we get to all of that wonderfulness we have going on this episode, how are you all doing? What's up? What's new? What's, what's, what's the word? What's the buzz? What's the biz? What's popping? <laughs> what's the, what's the biz? Well, the biz in Iowa is that we are now in the point of winter where we have, I'm not a board game person, but because we can't do anything else. We have started playing more board games, Bananagrams, Settlers of Catan. I love Settlers of Catan. Catan, Catan. That's how we say it in the Midwest. Oh, is it? Very fancy. (laughs) Catan. It's like Nevada. (laughs) You're right. Sorry. Toxes. Sarah lives in Toxes. Is that how you pronounce Texas too? No, no. No, it'd be be Texas. Yeah, we don't have endless. We don't have endless winter down here, so we don't play with our (laughs) our normal words and turn them fancy. But we started playing this new game, which is really fun. It's called I Descent. Have you heard of it? Mm -hmm. Yes, I've played it before. It's really fun. So basically, you have like these random topics, and then you have somebody who's the chief justice, and they choose a random topic, and then they decide much how much time you have to debate the topic, and then everybody decides whether they're going to agree or disagree and then votes with a certain number of points. And so it's about arguing, but it's also about strategy. Really fun. So how many people do you need to play it? Uh, probably at least three or four. A handful. Yeah. To make okay. it fun, I think. So you have to do it over Zoom, but um, still fun because yeah. you can argue over Zoom and Which have is a just, timer. is that not your daily life? I mean, it's just <laughs> meeting after meeting of arguing over Zoom. Yeah, but- <laughs> Yay! that but i'm allowed to drink wine while i'm on that zoom meeting so it's a little bit more fun that's true that's true that sounds like an excellent game i'll have to put it on my list of board games because unlike you i love board games and i would play them any time of year not just when i'm trapped in a house 
Agreed. Woods? I have rediscovered reading for fun. What? <laughs> what? I know. <laughs> Who is this? What is this? A big pastime of mine in years prior, <laughs> but not something I feel like when I reflected on it, I had done very much of in 2020. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been reading like a lot of books lately that are all fiction because that's the only way to kind of like mm-hmm. distract and check out and have it be absolutely. But I just read the 10,000 Doors of January and it was delightful. It was very good. It's a fictional story about a young woman who sort of discovers through these intersecting timelines about her family's past and also this kind of unique way that the world oh. works and these these different levels that can be discovered. And I'm not going to say any more than that because okay. the evolution of how the book unfolds is so good. So I just strongly recommend it. And so now I'm reading that same <gasps> author, but her next book that just came out a few months ago, because, Amazing. you know, when you figure you like one, you probably like the other. Absolutely. Others. What's the next book called? The Once and Future Witches. Whoa. That's yeah, it's really... It's this kind of intersecting tale of three sisters who may or may not have witching abilities intersecting with suffragists and work to obtain women the vote. Yeah, it's really interesting. Huh. That's a really, really cool yeah. follow-up question. Are they on audiobook? Because that's really the only way I read. I think probably, oh. I think probably given how popular they okay. are, they probably have been converted to that. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely yeah. check it out by listening to it. Yes. So it's interesting, Jacob brings up board games because I was going to talk about board games as well. Reflecting a couple of months ago, Christmas and kids get gifts. And my kids are finally at an age where like Christmas, like they get the concept and they can open up gifts and they get excited about it. And they're like a little bit more self-sufficient. So it's a lot more of the joy rather than like managing and making sure people don't put like wrapping paper in their mouth, stuff like that. But the games that kids get nowadays are absolutely incredible. They are like yeah. so beyond sorry and the game of life and all of those games I played as a child. Hungry, and hungry hippos. Yes, it wasn't. There. That was a, lot, a good one, though. That was a good one. Very aggressive game. I was never good at it as a child because I was like, this is a little too much. It's too much. I'm not going to slam this so much. I don't think I ever won that game. I didn't, I also never won the game where you have to like as fast as you can fish the for the fish. Uh, anyway. Oh yeah. The, where they, where the mouth plastic opens. poles. I hate yeah. that one. Oh, Charlotte yeah. has that one. I hate it. I'm so, I'm, I'm what so bad Operation. Oh, it's Operation. Not. I hated yeah. that one. That one gave me a lot of anxiety. There's a new operation. This is tangential, of course, but there's a new operation for vets. My son was playing it over at a friend's house and apparently you have to get, feed the pet some food and then you kind of trace it through all of its organs without hitting whatever and then at the end it comes out as poop and it farts or something like that i was like oh (laughs) and when you said vets originally i thought i was thinking like army vets like (laughs) veterans i was like better better veterinarian is it better is her description better (laughs) they're like oh yes i'm definitely investing in the poop game yeah right but anyway so one i mean what i love about the games is they there's a lot more like cooperation type games where you like you work as a team to get accomplish a goal which i absolutely love but also there's they incorporate like 
sneaky math and reading comprehension into some of these games. Like there's this one game called Sleeping Queens, which oh, of I love course, that game. oh my gosh, it's I just discovered one. it. It's so good. And so you have mm-hmm. to do math usually by like fives and tens. So count by fives and tens to get up to 50. And they're all of these kind of like intricate games, but it's just a card game. It's fantastic. I just love all these games. And I also genuinely enjoy them too. It's not just like one of those kids game that you're playing with your kids. Like it's also fun for you to play as well. And I also discovered the sushi game, which is kind of like a similar math concept where you have to play and order a sushi and each of the things are a certain number of points and you have to get a certain number of points. Anyway, I'm just flabbergasted by all of these people who are who have created games in the last 20 years since I've been a child. Yep, I said 20 years. That's a lie. Since college. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> I'm that's, just kidding. That's, that's true. <laughs> They're just so amazing. And I love them. And I can't wait to play more of them. Well, if you need an excuse, just move to uh, Iowa and we've got really long winters. You could play all the board games you want. Or I could just not go outside and winter or summer and play them here. I guess that's fair. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how they view relationships. This is the part of the show that's always prized to Sarah and I. So, Jacob, what you got for us? It is always a surprise because unlike- Is it a surprise to you too, Jacob? No, I I always know what I'm going to talk about. I just don't share it so you can absorb and be shocked and awed by how wonderful it is. React Um, lifetime. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to take that that pleasure away from you. Well, thank I'm so you. glad. Yeah, thank you. Oh so gosh, great. but unfortunately, we're going to take a <laughs> okay. little bit of a darker turn today. Oh, oh, so okay, here we go. Have you all heard of the Vow on HBO? Of course not. The Vow. So it isn't is, that a movie? No, it is a documentary series. Oh, no. on people who left the what was it called like is it nexium cult oh my gosh okay here we go you guys pop and culture so, don't don't join cults is that what the takeaway well, is for this no, one? Let's, so, see where it goes. let's see where it goes with this okay 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 here we go yes welcome I, to our I, roller coaster i will circle back to the 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 nugget of advice is don't join a cult okay good, okay i think that there is is really some important things to learn about this especially as it applies to what we do in our podcast here so sure follow me on my journey here follow we go me on my journey so if you're not familiar with this cult i'll give you some background information Exciting. it was uh founded by a guy named keith rainier who brags about having one of the world's highest iqs and in the early 90s created a pyramid scheme that got made him a lot of money and got shot down, shut down by the feds. And so in the early late nineties or early two thousands, he and this person who says they are a therapist, but actually has no credentials created this, what they called executive success program. And basically it was training for people to be able to live their best lives, be their most authentic selves 
and connect with people in real and authentic ways. Okay, I think I, I've heard of this Nexium group. Yes, now. so it, like if you ever a watch- A lot of hotel ballroom classes type stuff. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, okay, I'm with you, okay. If you've ever watched Smallville- Nope. Allison Mack, who's in Smallville, nope. ended up being one of the oh. ringleaders of oh. this of this cult. I won't give it all away because I know Please that, don't. you know- Sarah and Patricia are definitely going to spend their their warm winters in <laughs> watching this. But there's a process that unfolds over and over that you see in this documentary because one of the people that got indoctrinated into Nexium or ESP is what they called it was actually a documentary filmmaker, and so he had recorded tons and tons and tons of footage. And what you would see is every time something didn't sit right. The people would say, well, oh, that means you're not following this science. They actually refer to it science oh. and technology. And so there's something wrong with you and you need to change it and you need to be better. Right. And so as that message got sent over and over and over again, these people were more susceptible to manipulation, to doing things. Yeah. yeah, doing things that they, you know, in any other circumstance wouldn't do, right? When they step out of it finally and see that, they reflect like, how did I get to that point? In this podcast, a lot of times we talk about advice. We talk about advice mm. based in science. And one thing I think is important to take away is first, relationship science isn't prescriptive. In other words, just because we know something doesn't mean for the context of your relationship in a specific right. time period, it's going to work perfectly. So if somebody comes to you or you listen to us and we say, you should do this. And if you do that and it doesn't work and you're like, wait, this doesn't work. There's not a problem necessarily with you. It might be some problem with the advice. I think what, what you know, we talk about um, you know, we have the privilege of being in universities where we have time and access to read research, produce research. And we try to use this podcast mm -hmm. to share that knowledge with people, which I think is really important. But I also, so what I, I really like, even though I give her a really hard time, I love that there is always disagreement when we are reviewing yes. that advice because there needs to be flexibility, context, and understanding. Though it hurts my pride and uh -oh. my self-esteem frequently oh, my. Oh. when Sarah disagrees with me because oh. I just get so sad. Oh, um, oh I'm so sorry. Oh my. You're not following the science, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> I love how Jacob used an entire segment to try and come after Sarah. No, and it didn't work. It didn't. <laughs> no, but in thinking honestly and watching this show, because like it's really funny, we have very varied television tastes in our home, right? Everything from The Bachelor, Bachelor. to The Vow, and there's a lot of space in between. But I I do think that it's important. Whenever you are going to somebody to talk to them about advice, if they say that they know exactly what will work in this context, and if it doesn't work, it's on you, right. that is a form of manipulation and not something that would be based in relationship science. The things that we know the most are validation, support, connection is, is what creates successful, healthy relationships. If you put somebody on a pedestal who knows how to solve all the problems of your life, 
you are not going to be able to create those types of relationships that you want. So if you want to watch some really crazy shit unfold, yeah, watch it, The Vow. If I remember correctly, it's also like super dark. Like also there's like some uh, sexual abuse stuff as well. So just be mindful when you're, if you're going to take this leap into The Vow. Yeah, there would definitely dark. be some warnings. It is super dark. And also in the end turns out in a very like, People are held accountable, which is awesome. okay. Well, that's nice, and and feels like rare these days. Rare, so nice <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled "Expect the Best, Not the Worst: The Impact of Parental Expectation on Black Males' Math Scores," written by Drs. Lawrence Jackson and Jesse Ford at Florida State University, Dr. Brittany James at Florida AMU, Dr. Sydney Schleiden at Texas Tech. Dr. D. Ann Harris-McCoy at Northern Illinois University, and Dr. Jamila Holcomb at Florida State University. Recently published in the Journal of Black Studies, this paper describes the study exploring a potential positive protective factor, Black parents' educational expectations for their children that may help to mitigate the math achievement gap experienced by black males in the American educational system. The authors describe the many disparities faced by black students in the US schools, including inadequate transportation, fewer teaching certificates held by teachers in predominantly black public schools, and disproportionate punishments for behaviors that limit in-class time as examples. These disparities and educational oppressions are directly linked to Black students' lower rates of academic success, especially for Black males, who the authors point out are overrepresented in special education classifications, school suspensions and expulsions, and dropout rates. These inequities also show up in Black male high school students' math scores, which have lagged behind all other racial and ethnic groups for over three decades. Negative message these students receive about their academic capabilities can also be linked to these educational expectancies or their belief about how successful they can be. Although these authors test the link between ninth grade Black males' education expectancies and their math scores, they also test whether this association may be impacted by parents' expectations about how much their children will achieve academically. So Sarah, can you help explain what these authors tested a, a bit more and why parents' expectations are so important? Yeah, so the authors do a really nice job giving this, outlining this theoretical orientation that they have to all of these different pieces and how the value of education in Black families can essentially be transmitted from parents to kids and, and over generations. So they point out that Black parents place a really high value on education and have a goal to be very actively involved in their kids' education. They cite a Pew Research study from a few years ago that said that 75% of Black parents uh, endorsed that a parent can never be too involved in a child's mm -hmm. education. And that this education value, this value of academic success is often linked to identity. So that succeeding academically can mean acknowledging and valuing the sacrifices that parents may have made 
to leverage academic success. And then also succeeding academically can increase the likelihood of contributing to the education of future generations. So it's really kind of this lovely link across family generations that they're describing that impacts both the identity of these Black students and also their parents who really internalize their children's successes. And so they're talking about their parent, these parents' expectations for their children's academic success as a protective factor. And what they're testing is that the higher level of education that parents expect their children to achieve, the stronger the relationship between their children's educational expectancy and educational success will be, which mm-hmm. is, it's just a really lovely setup to an important, interesting question about this family dynamic influencing success for a population of students that is particularly oppressed. Their sample included 1,282 black male ninth graders from the baseline wave of the high school longitudinal study. So this data was collected in 2009. This data set is not the authors, but a national representative longitudinal data set that was collected by the National Center for Education. And so they measured students and parents' educational expectancy through their belief regarding the highest level of education they would achieve. So that wasn't grade-wise, these were ninth graders, but it was this span from whether they thought they would maybe not graduate graduate from high school all the way through master's degree and professional degrees. Mm-hmm. So a really pretty broad span of what they expected to achieve. They also controlled for socioeconomic status, which included the parents' own level of education, which yeah. I think is really important in yeah. this kind of study, when you're looking at educational success, we know those things can be linked. So they're controlling for that as well as parents' occupation and the family income. So what they found was that higher students' expectations for their educational achievement and higher parents' expectations for those students' educational achievement were each associated with higher math scores. So the further along I think I'm gonna get in school, the further along my parent thinks I'm gonna get in school, the better my math score is. They also found that the benefit of high parental expectations was even more pronounced for students who had high expectations of themselves, which is so lovely. Yeah. Now, I think a limitation of this project is that it's cross-sectional. So one could maybe argue that maybe I have a high expectation of my child based on the fact that I already know they get really good grades or they get particularly high math scores. And so that's why it's, you're finding a cross-sectional association. But what they also found that I think is really interesting is that higher parental expectations for what their kids would achieve academically was significantly linked to better math scores, even if students had low educational expectations for themselves which is really powerful because the authors point out that there are lots of indicators, these results being potentially one of the importance of instilling the value of education. What these Black families are doing in terms of having such a high value on academic success is really powerful and important and can translate into powerful and important academic success. They also are talking about, of course, the need to advocate for removing barriers to education for Black students. So that even though this is a really lovely study of a protective factor and how this might work in families, all of these barriers to education for Black students are not acceptable and can be and need to be addressed. But in addition to that, this nuance of how the parents' expectations for kids 
impacts that link between kids' belief in their academic ability and their academic success is really kind of highlighting how influential parents can be in mitigating those barriers. Mm -hmm. So even while we need to continue to do lots and lots of work to remove these structural inequities for Black students, their parents and their family values are really influential and impactful for reducing the impact of those barriers on their children's success, which is really a lovely, powerful kind of research to do. I completely agree. And also, I love some of the authors that are on on this paper. We had the fortunate experience to be able to go to school with Deanna, who's now at Northern Illinois University. And also, a lot of these people are from Florida State, Florida State, Florida State. Woo! But Jacob, Jacob and Sarah's alma mater. I did not go there. Yeah. And we forgive you for that. We forgive <laughs> you for that. Damn, that was fast. I really appreciate you how you summarized that, Sarah, because I think that is those two pieces are really important, right? Structural inequity, systemic racism is embedded into our education system. Mm-hmm. And it is important that we continue to remove those barriers, break down the systems that promote racism within schools, mm-hmm. and also show how impactful parents can be on kids' educational outcomes and holding those high expectations are important. Really cool study, really cool data set, just really interesting. There's there's another really great takeaway from Jacob. Really interesting. Really interesting. Good job, Jacob. I'm just full of really great insights today, y'all. You were wordless at how stunning and elegant this study was. This study, yeah. Well, I like don't have much to add because I really, really liked it. So that's, read that's it. perfect. Read it. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear about relationship advice from parents, families, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But A lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. So this episode is kicking off our celebration of Black History Month. We wanted to celebrate this month as best we can as three white people. So this week, I wanted to talk about advice about how to talk about racism as a parent to our children. I found a list of advice from Dr. Aisha White, director of the Pride Program within the Office of Child Development at the University of Pittsburgh. And this is published uh, through PBS. And of course, in all of our show notes, we'll share the link to the full article. I'm going to pick out a couple of her wonderful points. Are you all ready? Let's so do ready. It. Advice one, practice what you say before you say it. A big struggle we have when it comes to addressing racism with our children is that conversations about race can bring up fear, uncertainty, and discomfort for us too. Have these conversations with another adult first, says Dr. White. Call up a friend, another parent from school, or a family member to practice will help you become comfortable with what you want to say. Try to imagine questions your child might ask and be ready to answer those questions as well. Good or bad advice? Great advice. I think oftentimes, especially white folks, don't have to 
have the privilege of not having to think about race or articulate ideas around race and racism Mm -hmm. in a way that others don't. So I think it's really important that we take the responsibility to think through and to be intentional about how we contribute to racist practices, how we can use language to inform and teach our children and ways in which we cannot let our own discomfort block those conversations with our kids. So really good advice. Woods? Yeah, I agree. Good advice. I think it is an example of how parents can put in the work Mm. and get it to a place where they're able to communicate about it in a way that's helpful. So I think there's value too, and this might be something you're going to share in a bit. So I apologize if I'm preempting it, but there's value in having more diverse and representative characters in your kids' books, in Mm -hmm. your kids' toys, and what your kid is exposed to at home that also isn't enough. We know that parents need to put in the work to be able to foster meaningful conversations about race and racism. So this is a nice example of how to do that and kind of get closer to nailing it in terms of your comfort and being likely to have these conversations. Somewhat related, I don't know if I've shared this story with you. So the importance of practicing and making sure as a parent, you're comfortable talking about that and, and fielding any questions. So my mom, when I was a teenager, you know, tried to have the sex talk with me. And she was obviously very, very, very uncomfortable. And it went very poorly. So poorly that I found out years later, like maybe a decade and a half or more later, that she actually never ended up having the sex talk with my other two younger sisters because it went so poorly with me. So it's really important for the sex talks, but also when talking about racism, you make sure that you're comfortable with it. So any amount of discomfort from your children doesn't derail you from the entire process. Forever. (laughs) Forever. (laughs) It must have been really bad for her, that conversation. But anyway, I think the similar thing applies to talking about race and and racism with with your children. So good advice. Uh, Number two, be aware of your own biases. Really what children pay attention to is adult behavior, says Dr. White. You can talk incessantly with your child, but if you behave in ways that demonstrate you are fearful of people of color, fearful of black people, or if your children are growing up in an all white neighborhood and you don't expose them to people of color, children do notice that. They notice your body language and they listen to what is being said around them. Dr. White points out that this is particularly important for parents of white children, as research shows that kids of all races begin to develop a preference, quote, preference for whiteness at young ages and carry that through adulthood. White children are getting all of these messages about white being preferred, being better, being ideal, says Dr. White. So parents have a huge challenge in countering that, saying things such as, hmm, I see that all the people in this photo are white. What do you think about that? We've been talking about racism, remember? Do you think racism might make it harder for Black people to become important leaders? Is that fair? So bringing up those issues as well. So it's kind of almost like two pieces of advice at at once, being mindful of your own biases, but also kind of pointing things Mm -hmm. out in your child's environment as well. Mm -hmm. Jacob, good or bad advice? Again, Good advice. Great advice. I think too, one of my favorite authors around this topic is Ibram X. Kendi, who is the head of the Anti-Racism Center at Boston University. And he frames racism and anti-racism as not a fixed state, 
but things that we engage in at different times, right? So like oftentimes you'll hear somebody say, well, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And right, that right. racism is a trait or a, a state that you have and you either have it or you don't. When in fact, racism is something that we can, we can hold a racist idea, we can engage in a racist practice and other times engage in anti-racist ideas and practices. So I think when it comes to this is partially to examining our own behavior mm -hmm. and being able to own up and take responsibility when we do hold those racist ideas or engage in those racist practices and hold ourselves accountable because then we are modeling this process of recognizing, taking responsibility, feeling uncomfortable and trying to change, which I think is really important to model for kids. Yes. Good, good advice. Woods. Yeah. Good advice. I love what Jacob just said so much. It's such a beautiful frame. And I think similarly, my reaction to what you described in that, that piece of advice is really about authenticity. Kids will attend to our behavior more than our mm -hmm. words. So your words fall flat if your behavior is demonstrating something entirely different. So that conversation you just prepared to have by practicing it or kind of thinking about where can I insert these conversations in ways that really natural, now I've practiced, et cetera, falls totally flat if then you're demonstrating a totally different kind of behavior, whether that's consistently or here and there. So I think developing some authenticity and having this be something that you attend to for your own self consistently is really important. So good advice. And I, I also want to highlight what, what Jacob is saying, this, this being anti-racist is, is an active thing. It's not just good enough to not be racist, right? It's also pointing out like what they're saying is pointing out in a picture, maybe you see of like mm -hmm. a picture of scientists and saying, oh, look, they're all white people here pointing out these inequities that we we see and having conversations, open conversations that aren't angry or anything like that, just open conversations about why these systems are and bringing your child's attention to that and also asking them how they feel about that. What do they think about that? I think that's also a good thing to process as well. So overall, be aware of your own biases. We're saying excellent advice. And next, this is kind of getting to what Sarah alluded to earlier. Use picture books. Notice what your child might be learning about race from their favorite stories. If all the characters in a book look the same, ask what your child thinks about that. If the characters are diverse, ask them something like, which character would you want to be friends with? Dr. White says, you might be shocked by their answer, but try not to react with judgment. The goal is to understand what your child knows, doesn't know, and what they might be already thinking about race. Then you can help your child learn to ask more questions and prepare yourself for more conversations in the future. So you're using picture books as kind of a, a tool to understand what's already going on in your child's brain. Good or bad advice, Jacob? Good advice. We are in the process of, you know, we're starting, we've been, you know, reading books to our son now, who's uh, about to seven months old. And we're trying to be intentional because, you know, oftentimes you brought up this conversation too, Patricia, we think of a conversation around race and racism as a one-time event, like the right. sex talk, but really in all of these talks, it's a conversation that starts when they're young and continues. And I think that, you know, prioritizing and thinking about how you can begin these conversations, even when your kid is young, is really important because then you and your child develop this 
ability to navigate these harder conversations. So you're not just coming to them when they're 16 and be like, oh, let's talk about racism. And we haven't talked about it for 16 years, but here we go, yep. right? If we FYI, start- racism is bad. All right, yeah. you're inoculated from racism, moving on. Yeah, yeah. right. That doesn't work. You- <laughs> it, it's important, I think, to be intentional about that throughout developmental stages of your of your kid's life. So good advice, Woods. Agreed, good advice. And in addition, I really like this piece about not reacting with judgment because mm. uh, I think it can be really kind of self-imposed judgment too of like, oh, like that's, I really don't want my child to be responding in that way or thinking like that and like, oh, lock it down. Yeah, as or well what as, did I do wrong as a parent? Right, it, becomes right. about, it could become easily about yourself. Right, especially if you're kind of surprised to hear something come out of their mouths that really kind of isn't a fit for you values wise or kind of counter what you're hoping that they are learning or experiencing. But the non-judgmental piece, and I think this is what Jacob is describing too, encourages your kids to continue to respond authentically and you be able to continue to have those conversations. And it is a learning process, right? If we're to think about racism as something that fluctuates over some of our learning in our experiences in our life course, et cetera, in a way that Jacob just described much more eloquently for your last piece mm-hmm. of advice, then these are conversations that are gonna to need to continue to happen. They will go underground if you are judgmental and right. try to lock that stuff up. So it's much more important to remain open-minded and non-judgmental in order to have those conversations. So we're in agreement, good advice. Next, answer why does this keep happening with an activity? So to provide a little context over this piece of advice, it was uh, brought up when referring to the Black Lives Matter protests around the world in response to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So Dr. White said, you know, we've been here before. Something older children in particular will begin to notice and something very hard for parents to explain as to, you know, why it's, things aren't changing. Dr. White recommends using a short activity she learned from Dr. Aaron Winkler, associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And here's the activity. Take out some string and have your child wind and tie themselves up, maybe even looping their hands together with their hands. Then talk about the fact that racism and oppression and discrimination have been building for a long time. It's really tangled and layered. Just like your hands will look, said Dr. White, you can talk with your child about how long it will take to untangle the string and untangle racism. Even if we get one knot out, there will be many more left and we have to keep working at it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes these very complicated structures, especially when we're thinking about institutional racism, that is sometimes more challenging to, to, to see and answer the question, why do these same things Keep happening over and over again. Use this activity. Uh, good or bad advice? Great advice. What a cool, experiential, yeah, thoughtful, helpful uh, activity to do. And I love, like, as as you were reading that, like to me, like it just helped me answer that question better too. Right? right? You know, like, okay, this this is a way that because often you do get in a place where you feel that despair. And knowing that there needs to be the intentional continued effort and anti-racist practice to, in order to unwind that string is important. I am just going to put that in my tool belt and 
And yeah. when it is developmentally appropriate for my child, that will be something that we do in the priest home. So great advice. I mean, I think this is also for, there There are a lot of college level classes that talk mm-hmm. about racism. I think that this is beyond just ch- children. I think it would mm-hmm. work great for adults and mm-hmm. college age students as well, b- because that experiential piece. Sometimes it's really hard to get something until you can experience and touch it and and live with it and and, Mm -hmm. and better understand it. So I I think great advice and even across the the Mm -hmm. age spectrum. Uh, Woods? Yeah, I agree. That's so lovely and intentional and visual of an activity that you're describing. I also wonder about the value of having like siblings, for example, be engaged in the process in terms of like, it's not always possible to untie our own hands from things like racism. And so how can we help advocate for other people and help untie those knots on with them because they sometimes that's the work of all people to be doing and I think probably could fit in in team classes too yeah team activity oh I like Mm -hmm. that I like that Mm -hmm. so great advice excellent Mm -hmm. activity recommend doing the activity I want to do it as well so this is the last piece of advice we're going to pull but please read the article there are a lot of other bits of advice as well so help children begin to understand how to be an ally. With school-age children, Dr. White says you can start to have conversations about standing up for your friends and classmates. She suggests an activity created by an educator in the Pride teaching cohort. Try reading Intersection Allies, We Make Room for All, and ask your child what they would do if they saw characters in a book being made fun of or called names or bullied. At the end, you can have your child write out a sentence or draw a picture about how they can be an ally and who they can be an ally to. This can be a step toward children thinking about what they can do as a young child who might not feel like they have a lot of power, but they do, especially in, it seems like in their classroom, says Dr. White. So good or bad advice, this activity of being an ally and kind of practicing being an ally in your home or, or wherever. Jacob? Great advice. Another great activity. And I really appreciate how Dr. White is introducing this concept of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, you know, an important thing to also discuss with, with children in that, you know, the intersection of multiple identities, some that are privileged, some that are oppressed, can make these systems of oppression, of racism, very difficult to navigate. And so even though that can be a complicated issue, using this type of activity to draw out, to provide examples can create a way for more discussions to happen, a way for developmentally appropriate reflection and discussion, which I just think is, again, something that is important and necessary for us to be teaching kids. So great advice. Great advice, Woods. I agree. Great advice and easy to plug in so many different places. There are lots of great kids books and television shows, and there are lots of mixed or not so great books and television shows. And a lot of times I have this experience of a parent where I'm like halfway through reading a book thinking, oh God, this is awful. (laughs) The only way that I can sometimes kind of turn it around so that she's not learning how to be a bully is as an opportunity for like, let's talk about, this is making me not feel very good. Is it making, how's it making you feel? And and what would you do differently? And they remember those conversations. My daughter and I were talking about the country of Brazil a few days ago. And 
music that originated out of that country and Rio de Janeiro. And then she heard the name of that city in a game a day later and asked me just this morning, is it Rio de Janeiro or real de Janeiro? And I said, <laughs> it's Rio. I said, remember we watched like this weird movie like a long time ago, it was called Rio and it had like parrots. And I said, I don't remember liking it that much. She said instantly. And I, this had to be a I don't know, two years ago, she said it was awful because they treated the parrot bad because he was different than all the other parrots. And then mm. they tried to like kind of force him to marry that girl parrot that he didn't really like. And I remember we didn't like it at all. I mean, I couldn't have remotely told you the storyline of that stupid movie <laughs> we watched two years ago. But when you have these conversations, they stick in meaningful ways um, that your kids really can draw on later on. So I think this is a really great piece of advice. I agree. I think it is fantastic advice. And also kind of pulling on our academic deep dive about expectations. I think it sets expectations, the parental expectations for the child that you're, you're expected to be an ally. You're expected to stick up for people who are being bullied, especially in, in the context here because of the color of their skin or their, their gender. You, that's an expectation in this family that we stick up for people who are being oppressed in society. And I think that's really, really nice. And I don't know if there's any research about that, parental expectations and what the child does, but extrapolating substantially from our academic deep dive segment, I would imagine that it would affect change in the child's behavior if those are the expectations you're setting as a parent. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.